date is the 12th of February 2021 and our guest today is John Wellborn, um, Professor of Economics at Dartmouth. Thanks for joining us, Professor. Thank you for having me. Great. Um, so just before we get started, would it be possible just to walk our audience through maybe your areas of expertise and interest and maybe the classes that you teach here at Dartmouth? Sure. So I've been a lecturer at Dartmouth for about five years and uh, many years ago I was a Dartmouth student myself. So I'm happy to be back in a place that I know and love and teaching. Um, in addition, I was originally hired by the Political Economy Project to teach a class on regulation and a class on China. When I was a Dartmouth student, I was a Chinese major. Um, but I, over the years, in my private work as a consultant, uh, I spent a lot of time working in the field of securities regulation. And so the, the first class I taught at Dartmouth was this class about how regulation gets made, specifically how um, the, the relating to my background in securities regulation, stock regulation, market regulation. Um, as a graduate student, you know, a decade ago, my uh, research was on the trade settlement system. And so my dissertation was, I, was published as sort of series of papers about how trades settle and particularly how trades fail to settle and this strange topic of naked short selling. Um, and I, before I came to Dartmouth to teach, I spent many years um, involved in litigation related to what they called naked short selling and fails to deliver. And that's where I spent a lot of time learning about um, the plumbing of the stock market. And there's an awful lot of that happens after a trade is made that most retail investors have no, no, no uh, awareness of or inkling of, and they don't need to know, frankly. Um, but all of that is, it's sort of strange to me because this tiny corner of um, obscure knowledge, trade settlement, is suddenly very popular uh, now with the GameStop store. Everybody wants to know about trade settlement and naked short selling. Yeah, well, I guess we're no exception there. Um, I think to start off with, it would probably be a good idea just uh, for anyone who's not you know, familiar, just to give a very brief overview of what happened with GameStop. And um, we can use it as kind of a starting point for our proper conversation on regulation. Sure. So GameStop is, um, as everybody knows, is a, is a retail establishment. They have physical locations where customers can buy and rent new and used games and gaming consoles. And GameStop has been hit very hard by the pandemic, obviously, because retail uh, has been hard, hit hard by the pandemic. We can't leave our homes and we're not, in some places, not even allowed to go out um, unless it's for essential items like groceries. So places like GameStop and AMC theaters were hit extremely hard. And they were, they were having a lot of difficulty before that. They were having a lot of difficulty just in general being, you know, being a retail establishment. And so for many years, there's a group of, of, of hedge funds uh, betting that GameStop and would, would not be in business much longer, at least that their, their valuation continued to decline. They have a lot of debt and they have just general the fixed costs of running all these locations around the country, which is their, their bread and butter. They have not, GameStop has not transitioned to the, the digital space in the way that other companies have. And many short sellers who are people who bet that, it, that the stock price will decline, I thought that the GameStop story was a replay of the Blockbuster Video story from a decade ago. Blockbuster Video used to have 
uh, VCR rental, uh, VHS tape rental establishments throughout the, the country and the world. And now, of course, nobody's heard of Blockbuster Video. And so these short, these hedge funds that were betting that GameStop would decline in price thought that this was Blockbuster Video all over again. So that's, that's the backstory to a process that began probably about last summer, maybe before, among a small community of investors on the Reddit investor board. Okay. And I mean, I guess this is where we can start talking about regulation. So I think to start off with, I mean, I was just curious that there are quite a few theories, I guess, um, in the mainstream media of what exactly caused Robinhood, which I guess you can go into detail about, to kind of halt trading um, on these particular stocks. So, you know, what exactly are these competing views on that? So let me give a quick backstory and, and feel free to jump in at any time if I'm not being clear. So in a typical stock trade, what they call a long position, a retail investor will buy stock, hoping the price appreciates. And, you know, but this is the buy low, sell high story. And most investors, that's good enough. Um, they, you know, if they, if they feel a company is, is overvalued, they either don't, they don't get involved or at least they sell their long position. There's this, the inverse of that is this thing called short selling. And in short selling, you borrow securities, which you sell immediately, predicting that the price will go down. So if you're short in Wall Street terms, that means that you owe. To be long means that you own, to be short means that you owe. And if you're short stock, that means that you owe it, that you owe that, that quantity of shares that you borrowed. So if I'm short a thousand shares of GameStop, I owe that thousand shares to some, what they call a beneficial owner. And a GameStop short seller borrows those stocks, sells it today, anticipating a price decline, and you capture that difference. If you buy, if you short it at 10 and it drops to five, then you've captured the $5 difference minus whatever borrow fee that you pay. Um, short GameStop was so heavily shorted, meaning so many investors, uh, institutional investors, hedge funds, whom we call hedge funds. Hedge funds are a special class of institutional investor that have a certain size of assets under management, and they have special brokers called prime brokers. And prime brokerage offers a special suite of services to hedge funds that are not available to retail investors like you and I. And they were so heavily shorted that more shares had been sold short than GameStop had actually issued. Over 100% of what they call the uh, I'm sorry, not not more shares than been issued, but more shares that were tradable. So hundred over hundred percent of the float have been sold short. So some huge, huge quantity of shares um, were sold short. And what is unique about that um, is, uh, and I just want to clarify. So what I'm not saying is that there were more shares shorted than were issued, but then were available to be traded. And you can see that through 13F filings, who's, how many shares are tradable through what they call the float. What's unique, that can happen through this process of called, some people call it chained lending, or there's a fancy term called rehypothecation, that basically the same shares can be borrowed, sold to a new person, relent, reshorted multiple times. And you can get to this process of chain lending through the system. Um, what is unique about the stock trading and settlement system 
is most investors assume that if I hold stock in my portfolio, I'm actually, I have, I have a, maybe not physical stock, but in a ledger somewhere, there's some debit that's saying, okay, these stocks belong to, to John Doe or Jane Doe, these hundred shares. But that isn't how the stock settlement system works. The system as it was, has evolved since the 1970s is designed to prioritize liquidity and to keep the system running so that whenever traders show up to market, there are very few impediments in their way. And one of the ways that that was done is through this thing called basically book, through the process of net settlement and book entry um, share trading in a ledger at a place called the Depository Trust Clearing Corporation, which is this massive organization that oversees all settlement of all trades. Um, and trade settlement is instantaneous. It used to be, originally it was five days, then they shortened it to three days. A few years ago, they shortened it to two days. But trade settlement takes time. So when you're buying and selling stock, the brokers don't always check right immediately to see if they have it in inventory. In fact, the broker is making a promise to the clearinghouse that they will get that stock and deliver it um, to the clearinghouse um, 10 days later. Why is that important to the GameStop story? Well, the GameStop story relates to this very strange thing called naked short selling. And in naked short selling, essentially traders, or really their brokers acting their behalf, are shares are being shorted that are not held in inventory somewhere. Shares are being sold short with an expectation that they will be located at some date before settlement date T plus two. Um, many years ago, uh, after in the dot-com bust, there was a lot of very strange trading in the dot-com bubble of 2000 and then the collapse of Enron and other strain and stocks like AOL. And a lot of retail investors were upset, believing that there was that people were selling short far more shares of stock than would be allowed if there was a clear accounting of where that stock was held and who owned it. And so the SEC enacted this thing called Regulation SHO. Regulation SHO governs short selling. They enacted it in it, was an, it uh, passed in 2004, went into law in 2005. But Reg SHO had all kinds of loopholes and exceptions, and the SEC had to amend it in 2008 and 2009. But it's still a very fuzzy area of law, because if I'm a hedge fund and I want to sell stock short, and I go to my prime broker, who's typically a large broker dealer like Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley, um, and I say I want to sell short. Well, my broker just executes the trade for me. I don't think is the hedge fund where it's coming from. I just know my broker is doing that trade on my behalf. So that kind of gets to the fuzziness of who was short. Um, we know that there was a lot of naked short selling in GameStop because the SEC has a website where they publish the names of companies with significant fails to deliver. A fail to deliver is the result of a naked short sale that does not resolve after two days. And on the SEC website, the SEC has, well, the SEC, each exchange, each major exchange, the, um, the SROs, NASDAQ, NYSE, and a couple others, have to publish a list of companies with large and persistent fail to deliver positions every day. And GameStop was on that list uh, throughout 2020. 
on and off the list, significant failed flip positions. That's on the website of the, on, of the exchange that, that, that GameStop is listed on, um, the listing exchange. Uh, I've, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's uh, the New York Stock Exchange, NYSE. So if you go to the NYSE website, you can see the list of companies that have large persistent failed deliver positions. And in addition to that, if you go to the SEC website, you can download the raw fail data, which is something that I work a lot with in my, um, in my research. Why does that matter? Well, there was this community of people on the Reddit message boards, Wall Street Bets, who knew this, who thought, wow, there, are, there is this huge, huge, call it an excess short position in GameStop. And what is the, And when some traders see that, they say, wow, this is ripe for a short squeeze. What's a short squeeze? Uh, first of all, was, that, was all of that clear, Drew? Did I... Did I explain that? That was great. Yeah, I mean, it's okay. super complicated, so that was good. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, it's it's very the, the funny thing about trade settlement is there was a time about ten years ago when about fifty people in the world cared about it enough to look into it, and now suddenly everybody is thinking about trade settlement. Yeah. But I, I, when I did my dissertation, it was nobody cared about it. Um, <laughs> but it's very strange. That, anyway, moving along, what's a short squeeze? Well, short sellers owe a debt. To be short is to owe. And these short sellers, uh, those, the traders in the Wall Street Bets message board, whether intentionally or unintentionally, whether, whether coordinated or by design, knew that if the price were to go up, it would be extremely costly for the short sellers for two reasons. One reason is if you are short, you have to give collateral to your broker dealer. You have to give them margin. And... Essentially, your margin is a function of how much you owe to the broker dealer. And if the price of the thing that you're betting against goes up, then you have to keep dumping more margin in um, to make up the difference. On top of that, if the price keeps going up and you decide to exit your position, um, it's extremely costly. It, it is the it is the reverse. It's the opposite of being long and the price collapsing. Being a short seller means that you have infinite, in, theoretically infinite losses on the table. It's very hard being a short seller. Short sellers typically run a small book. They know the stocks intimately. They know what the CEO eats for breakfast. They know where he or she eats dinner at night. You do a lot of research uh, because you're taking a phenomenal amount of risk. Things can move against you very badly in a squeeze. And this Wall Street Bets community, they didn't know who was short. GameStop, but they know that, that someone was short a lot. So, so short that it exceeded the amount of tradable shares on any given day. And that there were so many shares sold short that there were even fails at the clearing corporation, these fails of liver. So through that process, these Wall Street bets traders said, you know what, this is our chance to, you know, bring justice to the little guy. And uh, what's interesting about the, and, and so let me put it, so that's, the premise of what happened to GameStop, and it began, it had been building slowly throughout, kind of starting last summer, building throughout the fall, and it was it was little bit by little bit, more people joining, more people buying, and what, what really, really drove the stock up is something called a gamma squeeze. And so we can talk about that next, but, but so we, that's the premise of the short squeeze 
is that this community knew that if this price started to move up, that that the short sellers would be in a real that there were these these pressures that could drive it up higher and faster. Okay, um, I think we can move to a gamma squeeze now um, okay. and see what that is. Yeah. Okay. Well, let me let me just say this. So, I think it's important to mention here why you twenty twenty is unique from a retail trading point of view. When I was a Dartmouth student, I think students were talking about trading stocks. People would buy AOL was the Tesla of 20 years ago. So you see the price chart of of America Online. That was like Tesla today. Uh, you know, hopefully not the downslide afterward, but um, that was what uh, kids talked about then. And that was also the dawn of retail brokerage. People had E-Trade accounts. I remember that in the Super Bowl, you saw the first E-Trade commercials with the baby. Look how easy it is. Even a baby can do it. Since that time, retail brokerage has become tremendously competitive. Um, most retail brokers until the Robinhood era made most of their money just by having stock and cash sitting in brokerage accounts. They don't make it off commissions. Nobody makes uh, the agency commission business is dead. Um, and Charles Schwab is very open about this. That Schwab makes most of their money just by having assets in their customer accounts that they can that they can use and investing those assets. The Robinhood era is unique because the Robinhood is the merging of social media and gaming and free apps all into one. And to use the Robinhood app is you have to understand sort of the game, the game, video game type quality of it. But what's unique about Robinhood is it's offering customers a couple of things that were never ever offered to retail investors before. One is margin, I mean the ability to borrow money and invest. Now margin's been around as long as markets have, but it's not the kind of thing that retail investors could ever take advantage of. It's just a borrowing money to buy stock, which is a form of leverage. So your returns are a lot higher, but your losses are also higher. The other thing that Robinhood offered was options trading. And buying options is, a, is another form of leverage. Essentially options um, are a way of trading in volatility and trading in risk. And if you buy cheap options, tip, options tend to be cheap and cheap where risk is low and volatility is low, and options tend to be expensive when risk is expensive and volatility is high. And what a lot of these GameStop investors were doing wasn't buying GameStop stock. They were buying call options. And a call option is a right to buy a stock at a later date at some specified strike price. Why does that matter? Well, a call option has to be, now we're getting into derivatives markets where things are, um, one for one, if you will, gross settlement instantaneously. You're trading with a market maker. That market maker who sells you that call option is short because they owe, if, they, if, if you want to buy, the call option is a right to buy a share of stock and the market maker has given you that right. So for the market maker to give you that right, that option, they're going to need a share of stock at some point to sell you. So they're short. To be flat, the market maker has to go buy GameStop stock. 
and they they're they're hedging constantly because the market makers don't like to be they're not speculators they're making a difference between the spreads and they're also making a difference between the pricing of different assets so a market maker to be hedged they have to buy enough stock so that they are hedging the amount of calls that they've sold uh, we got a we got a glimpse of this last summer with Tesla, and I'll get to that in a moment. But so so the delta of an option is the relationship between the price of an option and the price of the underlying stock. This relates to something called the Black-Scholes formula. We talk about this in Math 86. Um, but the rate of change of delta of these two prices is gamma. And as the price of the common stock rises. Or the price of the options, the price of the options are going to change, and, and vice versa. There's sort of this this uh, feedback effect. Hence the gamma squeeze. That is, more calls keep getting bought. The market makers have to buy more and more and more GameStop stock, and it has this process. What well, that has the effect of, if enough people are buying calls, and then there's enough upward pressure in the stock price, it pushes things up parabolically very rapidly because market makers are not going to be naked the calls they're not they're not going to be short the calls are being hedged and that's a gamma squeeze this happened last summer with tesla uh softbank or may, it may have been softbank it may have been another tesla investor but bloomberg has written about this that this pro, this principle by which you have enough call option buying it has the effect of uh, at some of driving up the price just by definition and so that's the gamma squeeze, and that happened to GameStop. Is you had all these people buying call options at this some critical moment, at a critical mass was reached, and suddenly the price goes parabolic because the market makers are buy, have to buy, buy, buy. What does that do to the short sellers? Well, it just absolutely wipes them out. It 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 the losses were in the billions um, for the for the hedge funds that were short Melvin Capital. Uh, we because of the Wall Street Journal, we know that the one of the, the biggest short seller was Melvin Capital which had to be recapitalized by its biggest investors. Um, it lost so much money in this in this trade because things just moved against it. I have a few questions going off that. So obviously that's a lot of information, but um, I think kind of relating to regulation, the gamma squeeze seems quite destabilizing. And I wonder whether, you know, the SEC or other regulators, and I think we can get into, you know, what exactly the architecture of regulation around securities trading looks like and who's involved. But um, has this kind of caught the eye of regulators? Is it something that's kind of unique to last year's Tesla and now with um, GameStop, or is this something that's been going on for um, for a while? Well, I mean, regulators say that they are. There are a couple of interesting things to note here. One, the reason why everybody got so upset is because Robinhood and other brokers, not just Robinhood, um, Interactive Brokers, Schwab, uh, others had to stop trading in these stocks. Now, and, and very famously, the CEO of Robinhood went on um, CNBC on, I think it was a Thursday, I forget which week it was, but I remember him on CNBC <laughs> sweating and defending their decision. Why did they do that? Well, Rob, first of all, Robinhood's business model is different than other brokerages in the past. Maybe, well, maybe not totally different, but they are unique in the fact that they make almost all of their money from selling order flow. It's called payment for order flow. And they, they sell their order flow to big hedge funds like Ken Griffin Citadel. Um, 
some people are upset about that, but that's the, the flip side of it is that's what allows investors, Robinhood users, to basically trade for free and to get really good. Ex- they don't just trade for free. They get very good execution. They get very good pricing on their trades um, because of the stru- because their their data is valuable. Just like all social media, as I tell my students, that you're not the cust- you're not the client, you're the product. And the same thing is true with Robinhood: is you're not the client, you're the you're, your data is the is the information being bought and sold. So there's this order flow, and the what is unique about Citadel is they were one of the which is one of the biggest hedge funds in the world, one of the most successful in human history. They were one of the funds that bailed out Melvin Capital, who was short GameStop. So one conspiracy theory is that, you know, Citadel called Robinhood and said, you have to stop. You have to stop trading in these securities. You have to shut it down. Our, we're losing too much money. Our friends are, are you know, are the, the funds that we're invested in are losing all this money. You have to stop it. I don't, I think that theory is convenient, but probably uh, a little bit too simplistic. What, what is more likely to me is the, is the theory that, that the head of the DTCC, the clearinghouse, brokers have a clearinghouse they have to report to. And just like Robinhood is no other broker, the clearinghouse called up Robinhood and raised Robinhood's margin requirements. Just like short sellers have to make margin for the stuff they owe, Robinhood owes things to the clearinghouse. And because of the, the way the plumbing of the system works, the system wants to keep going, wants to stay liquid. So the accounting is settled later, over a couple of days later. And so the, the, what I think is a more reasonable, a reasonable explanation is that the clearinghouse called Robinhood and said, we're raising your capital requirements for these, not just in A in general, but also in these particular stocks. And we know that from various reports in the Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg that they that they the DTCC asked Robinhood to uh, raise their capital by uh, some huge number like eight and a half billion so Robinhood had to go to their investors to bring in extra capital but while they're waiting for that to happen they can't allow further trading in these securities because they are by allowing trading they're making promises that they can deliver these securities to the clearinghouse that they may not be able to do with what they have on, on hand. Where does regulation fit in? Well, these capital requirements that clearinghouses have were uh, increased dramatically, or required to have, or increased dramatically under Dodd-Frank. There's actually some small, poorly understood part of Dodd-Frank that had this dramatic effect on how brokerages work. Um, but the point, you know, the Without getting too complicated, the point is that a brokerage, a broker, um, is is almost like a bank in the sense that they're engaging in a type of fractional reserve type process, and um, they hold capital against their their liabilities. And due to because of the way Dodd Frank works, they had to raise those capital requirements. And the DTCC um, said to Robinhood and other brokers, listen. You need to, uh, these trades that you're doing in the securities, we need more money on hand for you to continue trading in those securities. Now, is there, so that's the kind of the vanilla, boring stock market plumbing type story. Um, to get to your question about market manipulation, which is a separate question, because the SEC hasn't seemed very worried about 
this halt of trading. I haven't seen any any rate. I've seen I've seen legislators worried about it because their constituents um, may be upset, but I haven't seen the SEC very upset about it. The SEC is more upset about market manipulation. Um, that tends to be the kinds of things the SEC worries about. And you know, there's this there's this phrase a pump and dump. Was this intentional? Was it designed to hurt Melvin Capital? Was it um, manipulative? And I think that's a very hard case to make for the SEC, honestly, because you know the truth is, unless you unless there's unless they find well, I will say one thing. I have seen very interesting evidence that this wasn't just retail traders on the Wall Street Bets message board. I think that it may have started out as retail people, but at some point, some institutional investors moved in and said, wait a minute, here's a real opportunity here. And there have been some hedge funds that have made huge sums over the last month in this trade, being long GameStop. So, you know, they might find that there was some C-enter. It's this legal term that, that means like knowledge, um, some plan at work. But failing that, it's a hard case, I think, for the SEC to make that there was manipulation of any kind because manipulation implies, you know, fraud, uh, dishonesty, you know, lack of transparency. And, and the Wall Street Bets guys, you know, for all of their faults, are posting their own brokerage statements. On, I mean, it's not like there's any mystery about what they're doing. They're posting their brokerage statements online um, to show uh what their positions are. And I've, my understanding of the law is that, that, um, you know, Pete, when you, when you're, you know, whenever somebody goes on CNBC, they always disclose, am I long this stock? Am I short this stock? And, and hedge funds have been talking their They call it talking their book. You go on, you say, this is a stock that I like. I'm long it. This is a stock I don't like. I'm short it. And they've been doing that for decades. So basically the Wall Street Vets crowd is, is uh, talking their book. Now, whether they're, then you have this issue of intent. Was their intent to manipulate a price? Was their intent to do some, uh, and that's kind of a complicated securities law matter. And we'll know a lot more over the next few months because I'm sure the SEC is investigating very carefully. But I, I will note, just so it's clear, the, SEC, the, the, the event that got everybody's attention a few weeks ago was the halt in the trading. And the SEC has shown no interest in investigating that because the official story is the DTCC simply raised the capital requirements on the brokers and Robinhood needed time to get more capital in. Um, yes, it, it benefited the short sellers because it kind of broke the back of, of, the, um, of the price. Uh, but uh, it does not seem to be that the SEC is not interested in that. They're much more interested in um, the, the activities among the the Wall Street bets crowd. And I mean, you mentioned that the D, um, DTCC you know, raised capital requirements directly in response to this event. I mean, was, was there explanation that this was directly a result of this, I guess, short squeeze occurring? And if so, has that happened in the past? I mean, is this like a novel event? So there, there is a history of this type of thing. Um, there was a, uh, there was a famous um, fund, MF Global, uh, years ago that um, uh, went went under when its broker um, raised capital requirements uh, in on some this was a unrelated situation but there was a history of it of 
um, broker dealers getting into a position where they just had they're overextended. Um, I'll, you know, the Bloomberg article, which I happen to have in front of me, which is interesting, says on January 28, after days of turbulence, the DTCC demanded significantly more collateral for member brokers in their GameStop trades. Spokesman for DTC wouldn't specify, but industry-wide collateral requirements jumped to 33.5 billion, up from 26 billion. So that's eight and a half or seven and a half billion. Um, and uh, brokerage executives rushed to come up with the funds. So. You know, DTCC is an organization that that processes over a quadrillion dollars worth of trades every year. It's the most important organization on earth that no one has heard of. It's owned by the major broker dealers. Um, it's kind of like a public utility. It's a member of the Federal Reserve System. It's a tremendously powerful, important organization that the set at the heart of financial markets. And a long time ago, the DTCC and Wall Street sort of worked out uh, a set of institutions that put liquidity at the top. There will be no sort of this this recognition, right or wrong, that our mission is to encourage liquidity and price discovery and um, to be as, as low cost as possible. And in doing so, they've kind of enabled some fuzziness in the system. And the fuzziness in the system, in theory, is minimized by capital, having more capital on hand to account for the fuzziness. But GameStop is a prime example of the books getting out of whack and this, the idea that trade is divorced from settlement by two days, which in, which in Wall Street terms is, is a, an infinite, that's a very long time. And it's kind of an anachronism. Truthfully, we should be at one day settlement by now, given the level of technology we have in this world. And maybe even, you know, a zero day settlement, half a day settlement. Um, and there are, there are people who talk about that and ways that that could be achieved. Um, so the DTCC at once is highly sophisticated, but also it's built upon this anachronistic system of delayed settlement. But because we have delayed settlement, then we have to have this capital on hand in case trades fail or, be, or in case obligations aren't honored. Um, so DT, from DTC's point of view, they are being a good uh, steward of the financial markets and they have this authority um, vested to them to raise capital requirements. So there is, there is precedent for it. Um, the sort of the, the, the unfortunate thing is that it really, at that very moment, when the Wall Street bets crowd thought that they had prevailed, uh, their momentum, their momentum was uh, was disturbed <laughs> uh, in this process. Yeah, and um, I mean, just ending off, I mean, that kind of gets to the heart of the matter. Just, I think, in uh, mainstream terms, seeing this is kind of like a Main Street versus Wall Street sort of story. And like, yes. we don't really have to comment on that, but um, I do wonder what influence do lawmakers have and does Congress have to actually influence laws that, you know, govern retail trading and um, I guess even related to what the SEC is um, investigating or would investigate with regards to something like Wall Street bets. I mean, is there any political influence in this at all or is it very um, separated? Well, like I, I, I mean, I, I, teach, I teach political economy, so I should... Uh, a couple things to think about with Wall Street and securities regulation. There's no more regulation on no more heavily regulated group of group of institutions on earth than Wall Street. Um, the there is just 
and as we discuss in my regulation class, um, more regulation means more barriers to entry for the entry. So Wall Street is it's heavily regulated, markets are heavily regulated, but it also means that they're they're somewhat insulated from competition. Um, what is uh, you know, as far as I, I would say this, what 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 happened in my mind, you know, setting aside kind of the conspiracy theories about it, to me, what happened really was a confluence, almost like a perfect storm of a series of things that nobody really expected. One, you've got a pandemic, which is uniquely bad for a business, GameStop. Two, you have everybody at home in their basement trading. We're bored. We're getting stimulus checks and 20-somethings who think they're going to live forever. What are they, they're not saving that for a down payment in a house. They're putting it in their Robinhood account. Um, that's why they call it the stimmy. I encourage my students to save it for a down payment on their house, but they, they don't always listen to me. Um, and uh, so you're getting the stimmy checks and then you have Robinhood and Robinhood, you open your Robinhood app. And to a certain extent, I sympathize with Robinhood because what's funny I actually really appreciate the level of knowledge that many retail investors have. I actually respect that. I think I, I know a lot of other professors are horrified that students talk about trading options. Options are very risky, but it's interesting that students are at least talking about it because options trading is about pricing of risk. And I think it's very, uh, I, I have such smart conversations with students about options because we're all understanding the price of risk. And I think that's kind of an interesting, kind of a cool moment in history. But this this GameStop thing wouldn't have happened if you didn't have an army of retail investors buying call options. You know, on CNBC 20 years ago, you wouldn't hear CNBC anchors talking about credit spreads and, um, you know, married puts and, and different options and iron condors. But now people know about that sort of thing. Um, my point is that you and so the, so the buying and then you had all of this, these sort of factors together and then a single stock that everybody fixated upon. By the way, one of the unique things about GameStop is because of this list, the reg show threshold list that I've talked about, the name of the stock being there, everybody knows that it's being heavily shorted in naked short selling. So the, it's like the SEC is publishing this list every day, uh, making it clear what the next obvious target is. Same thing with AMC. AMC was on the threshold list for months at a time. Um, you know, I suppose a couple of things could happen. One is the regulators could try to limit payment for order flow. They could try to get involved in what Citadel is doing, buying order flow data from Robinhood. The problem is that that's, and I say this to a lot of my students, that is what really, that ultimately benefits them. That's one of the kind of the paradoxes of this world of high frequency trading. High frequency trading has really benefited retail investors. It's tightened spreads. It's made for better execution, better pricing. The only people that were really displaced by high-frequency trading were professional traders. High-frequency trading doesn't hurt any retail investors, as, as far as I can see. Um, in fact, it helps them. And the Robinhood really couldn't exist without the high-frequency trading. But the regulators could try to stop it in that way and, and get involved in the payment for order flow debate, which has always been the payment for order flow debate is a whole other topic. It's been debated for for um, a long time at conferences, the ethics of it, whether it's ethical, uh, whether it raises conflict of interest issues, who knows. Um, 
but my prediction is that if regulators try to try to get involved in that, they will ultimately hurt the thing that that um, investors seem to appreciate, which is the ability to trade quickly and cheaply uh, through apps like Robinhood. Another thing, you know, you always hear when, uh, whenever an event like this happens, you hear about interfering in short selling. Um, I am passionately against naked short selling. I wrote. Uh, I believe that naked short selling is something that is that is a, that is a problem, but the regulators have taken a lot of steps to reduce it and minimize it. Um, but short selling itself is an essential part of markets, and and frankly, if if you if you ban short selling or if you which some countries have done, uh, South Korea famously banned short selling last year. Um, all you do is you get asset bubbles and you get even more volatility, uh, more than we've already had. Um, short selling really helps to moderate. Um, the forces and markets. What what happened in this case? I what I wish regulators would do is I wish they would focus more on the plumbing of the stock market. To me, two day settlement is an anachronism that needs to go. It's time to focus on a move toward a tighter settlement window or some sort of hybrid of net gross settlement, where securities have to be in inventory somewhere before they're loaned, and uh, you know trades move much more quickly. Than, this, than the way the system does now. The DTCC is a complicated mess. It has different areas. It has the, the National Securities Clearing Corporation where all the trades get settled. It has the DTCC, the DTC, Depositor Trust Company, where stock is held. And all of these things are institutions from the 1970s that need an update. And so if I could wave a magic wand, I would hope that regulators would use this to um, see an opportunity to update the system. However, the problem is too many people benefit from the system the way it is now, so I'm not holding out hope that it will change. Right. Um, well, Professor Wilborn, thanks for your time. Um, we'll probably wrap up there. Absolutely. All right. Thank you for, for having me.